Well, um, at, at Christmas time, uh, as we're getting so close uh, even now, uh, we often talk about the Christmas spirit. Uh, one of the movies we like to watch uh, around Christmas is called Elf. And part of the uh, story of that movie is uh, apparently Santa's sleigh doesn't run these days because there's not enough Christmas spirit. And so they have to get people kind of, uh, you know, into the Christmas spirit, so-called, to get the sleigh to get off the ground. Otherwise, nobody gets presents, whether you have a chimney or not. Uh, but we like that, that movie. But, you know, usually we talk about the Christmas spirit. And when you say that, what do you think of? Like, what, what, if someone were to ask you to define what that is, um, uh, this is my best guess at it. But I, I think of it kind of like a a sense of uh, kind of a general sense of cheerfulness and goodwill uh, that we associate with this time of year. You know, this time of year, at least some people, I hope, still you might smile a little bit more. You might be more uh, quick to greet even strangers with Merry Christmas. Uh, we might be more charitable to those in need and things like that. All, all those things are good things. Um, and in our text this morning, uh, John tells us about what I'm going to say is a little bit of a different kind of Christmas spirit, uh, if I can use a little bit of a play on words, uh, for John teaches us here about the need for discernment in listening to those who would put themselves forward uh, as Bible teachers, pastors, theologians, preachers, whatever the case may be. Uh, and you probably know uh, the, the Bible has a lot to say about this subject. It's, it's a very common uh, refrain in Scripture that we have to uh, test the spirits, sort of so-called, the way John puts it in our, in our passage this morning. And what does John tell us to do? You know, it, it, John has this way, if you're following along in 1 John, uh, he, he, pre, he kind of teaches us in sort of a, uh, in kind of a circular manner. He deals with different subjects repeatedly and kind of touches on them from different angles throughout the five chapters of this book. And one of the things he does is he, he we might call it a segue. He'll finish one topic and use a word at the end of, of, of one sentence that introduces a topic in the next passage and he does that again here in chapter one at the end of chapter three what does he say he says by this we know that he god abides in us how by the spirit whom he has given us and so he talks about the holy spirit and then what's the next thing he says in chapter four verse one beloved do not believe every spirit so he's going to go into a different uh, a related but different subject here uh, in our text and so what what does john want us to do. He wants us to have assurance of our salvation. And one of the ways that we have that assurance is by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And then maybe John's anticipating the arguments uh, or the questions of his readers saying, well, these false teachers, the Gnostics and others, they claim to have a spirit too. And they claim to have assurance of what they're teaching us by the spirit. So what does John say? He says, hey, you have assurance as believers by the spirit God has given you, but don't believe every spirit. Don't believe every spirit, but rather test them. So what does he want us to do? He says that we aren't to believe every spirit, but we are to test them. And what are we to test them to find out? He says to see whether they are from God and why. Why do you and I as believers need to test the spirits, as John tells us to do here uh, in, in 1 John 4? Uh, because just like during the time of the Old Testament, which we will look at a little bit later on this morning, he says there in verse 1, many false prophets have gone out into the world. So why do you and I need to test the spirits? Because there are many false prophets that have gone out, just like it was in the Old Testament. In many ways, the same thing continues now. And, and what is the test that John would have us to apply to the spirits, to the, to the, to the uh, teaching that we would hear 
Uh, at least one of these tests is that John instructs us to use uh, to discern between the spirit of God and the spirit of error. He says, every spirit, verse 2, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So he gives us kind of a thumbnail, you know, to a, very, a very small litmus test, so to speak, as to how to discern whether or not teaching that is claiming to be Christian really is. And that is a need that, you know, I, I wish I could sit here and say, you know, in the first century that was a big problem, but in our day, you know, we've, we've moved past all that and we don't have to worry about false teaching in these things. It certainly is not the case. Um, I don't know if I would say it's gotten worse, but it wouldn't, wouldn't be, uh, you wouldn't persuade me very easily that it hasn't in many ways gotten worse than it even was back then. But, so in other words, speaking of Christmas, uh, true Christian teaching, that which is from God and by the Holy Spirit, one of its hallmarks is it will always affirm and openly confess the truth of who Jesus Christ is. That he is truly God and truly man, that he, that he was, uh, as the Shorter Catechism puts it, he was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Shorter Catechism, question 21. With, without that truth, we have no redeemer, no good news, uh, no good tidings of great joy. We have no redeemer and no salvation. That's how important and key that truth is, the truth of Jesus Christ. And so I think it's a timely message in God's providence, at least for us to look, uh, with Christmas approaching, to look at this text uh, as our thoughts rightly turn to the truth of Christ's incarnation at Christmas time and hopefully other times as well. The true spirit of Christmas uh, will be the spirit that teaches and always affirms and confesses the truth of the incarnation of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that is the test that John would have us apply to whatever teaching that we would, would hear in our day as well. So the first thing I want to look at this morning, at least briefly, the first thing is the need to test the spirits. The need to test the spirits. Look again at verse 1. He says, Beloved, and he's giving them you know, kind of fatherly, you know, friendly advice to them. Uh, his counsel is, is coming from a place of love for his people. Uh, for the people of God, he's not chastising them. He's saying, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And then he adds the reason for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, we we as Christians can tend to be, I think in a good way, um, a rather trusting people for the most part. I think we have a tendency, and it's a good thing for the most part, that we have a tendency to... Uh, to assume the best of other people, especially people who bear the, past, the title of pastor, or theologian, or preacher. Now, that isn't always the case, unfortunately. But you know, most of the time, we give people the benefit of the doubt when they're trying to teach us uh, the Bible. But then John tells us that in some ways, that shouldn't be the case. We shouldn't be so quick when it comes to teaching to just assume the benefit of the doubt. In fact, he says to us not to believe every spirit. Don't believe everything you hear. You know, I, I say from time to time uh, here in the pulpit and elsewhere, um, don't take my word or any pastor's word for anything. It would be nice if you could. It would make things much easier. You wouldn't have to you know, think so hard and be so discerning. But don't take a preacher's word for anything if they cannot show it to be from the scriptures. Um, to be sure, uh, you know, I don't want to go too far with this, but you know, cynicism and a general attitude of distrust 
Uh, Those things are not found listed in the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. But at the same time, neither is gullibility. Neither is being easily led astray and deceived a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Brothers and sisters, we who believe in Jesus Christ should not be gullible. We should not be easily deceived, accepting or believing whatever we happen to hear. As long as somebody's waving a Bible around in front of us, uh, we should not check our brains and certainly not our Bibles at the church door. You think of the Bereans in Acts chapter 7, always a good example for us to follow. I mean, they had the Apostle Paul preaching to them, and what did they do? Like, you know, if it's us, you know, we don't have the Apostle. We have the Apostle Paul's teaching in the Scriptures, thankfully, but, you know, if the Apostle Paul somehow was, by God's miracle of God, able to come in this door and come up here, and I would very quickly sit down, right, and and listen. And most of us say, well, it's Apostle Paul, he's fine. And, and we probably could get away with that, right? But, but what, did the, what did the Bereans do? They searched the Scriptures daily, it says in Acts 17, to see if the things that Paul said were so, or to see if what Paul told them were true, and it wasn't an insult to Paul. In fact, the scripture, I think, records that that way as an example to set for us and something to be encouraged in us. And certainly if you judge by the results of that searching the scriptures daily, uh, God's saving people. A lot of even kind of important people in the town got saved because of that, of Paul's preaching and then looking at the scriptures to see if what Paul said about Jesus Christ was true. And so we, that is commended, obviously, to us. Now, maybe, maybe if you're like me, maybe you're sitting here reading our text, and you might say to yourself, why doesn't John just say, test the teaching? That's kind of how my brain just sort of translates it when I read it. Test the spirits. Okay, he's just saying, check out the teaching, make sure it's, it's true. Uh, why doesn't he just say, test the teaching to see if it's from God? It's certainly what he's getting at, right? That's the main goal in some ways in what he's asking us uh, to do. Why does he tell us to test the spirits in particular? Um, And I'll say a couple things, and there could be more than this. But first things first is every doctrine uh, has a spiritual source. And I don't mean that the way like Oprah Winfrey uses the word spiritual. You know, everybody, uh, people, I've heard often heard people say, well, I'm not a religious person. I'm just spiritual. And what that means, I have no idea. But it's kind of a, if you say you're spiritual, nobody gets offended. Like you have some kind of you know, undefined, I don't know what, what, what that quality is. Uh, I don't know what it means to be spiritual in that vague sense. But what they mean by that is, I don't believe anything in particular that might offend you. you know, I don't believe this is all there is. That, that just, you know, we just live and die and, and, and rot in the ground. Uh, but I don't want to offend anybody by being specific. I think that's kind of what most people are really getting at when they say they are spiritual. But every doctrine has a spiritual source. And what I mean by that is, Either the source of that doctrine is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself, and that's the case of when it comes to true Christian teaching from the the inspired scriptures, or if it's not from the Holy Spirit, it's from demons. It is demonic, and that's the case in any teaching that contradicts the word of God. You might think that sounds like an an overreaction or an overstatement, but Paul says something very similar. Paul warns us, literally, about the doctrines of demons. And, you know, when you hear that phrase, you think, oh, he must be thinking of some kind of horror movie sounding thing. No. Doctrines of demons is doctrines that contra- is any doctrine that contradicts what the Bible says about Christ. In particular, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. 
This is what he tells Timothy. He's, he's counseling and, and exhorting a young pastor, his protege in the ministry. And 1 Timothy 4, 1, he says to, to Timothy, he says, Now the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit expressly says that in, in later times some will depart from the faith by what? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings or doctrines of demons. What's Paul saying? They'll be led astray by false doctrine. They'll, they'll, they'll walk away from the faith. He says they will depart from the faith by devoting, it's a very strong word, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now, if you were to ask that those people who, who you know, left the faith, what were they devoting themselves to? What would they say? Well, these teachings. But what does Paul describe it as? The source. He, he points you to the source of the false teaching, and that is deceitful spirits. And those teachings uh, that were probably presented to them by very respectable-looking people claiming to be pastors and whatnot, Paul calls them doctrines of, of demons. So false doctrine, doctrine that is contrary to the, the truth of Christ in Scripture, is demonic in origin. Like Paul wants us to look at false teaching and say, you know, kind of take the, the pleasant-looking mask of it off. And say, look how, look how evil it is. Look how harmful and dangerous it is a thing. It's a dangerous thing to toy around with and to allow a foothold in any way. It's also likely that the early Gnostics were claiming uh, some kind of spiritual, quote-unquote, source for their teachings in order to assert authority for their strange doctrines. You know, in some way, whether they're Gnostics or not, in some way, this is what all the cults and false teachers inevitably have to do. And, and really what they always end up doing. Uh, what do they do? They claim to be speaking on the authority of God and sometimes in the place of God based on something other than the teachings of the apostles that are found in the scriptures. You know, sometimes a, a teacher uh, or even sometimes just an individual that you might know, you ever have somebody tell you this, God told me so-and-so. And how often has somebody told you that, well, God told me such-and-such, and the dot, dot, dot is, and so therefore you, something is required of you because God told them something. You know, what, what should you say when someone tells you, hey, God told me such and such? I'd be, where? Show, show me where God said so and so in his work. Because if not, it's presumption at, at, at very, at best. Um, but, you know, really what that is, especially from a Bible teacher, someone that stands up there and claims God told, revealed something to me, and they are not the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, or anybody that's written things in Scripture. It's manipulation is what it is. And really it's abuse. It's spiritual abuse. Because once somebody says, well, God told me such and such, therefore you have to do X, Y, and Z, what's the implication? If you don't do X, Y, and Z, you're not resisting them. You're resisting God. You're disobeying God when you really might not be at all. It might be the opposite. It might be to obey them is really disobeying God because God has never commanded such a thing. It's the same thing the false prophets did in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament. Because any time a prophet would speak, you're supposed to be saying, thus saith the Lord. That's what a prophet really does. It's not just telling the future. It's, it's speaking forth the word of God. And so to not do so in accordance with Scripture uh, is a demonic thing and something to be uh, avoided. The Roman Catholic Church, similarly, 
Where, where do they place their authority? Where do they, how do they bind your conscience when it comes to their, their doctrines and, their, and what they would have you do? Is it by the scriptures? They use the scriptures. It's by their tradition. They place their, their tradition over and above scripture. It's by their tradition that they interpret the scripture and they tell you the same. They say, well, you, you really can't know the Bible unless it's through our tradition. You can't read it for yourself with profit and with understanding unless it's through us. So really what they do is they put their own tradition and interpretation above even the scriptures. Uh, think about the Jehovah's Witnesses who, ironically enough with our subject this morning, have a, have a heretical view of Jesus Christ and who he is and was according to his humanity and his divinity. They have their own what they call a translation, the New World Translation of the Bible, which is really nothing but a mutilated knockoff of the scriptures that they are constantly revising and editing at no end uh, to, in trying to silence, as if they could do such. They're trying to silence the Bible's clear and ubiquitous testimony to the true deity of Jesus Christ. There is, there is no end of passages they are going to have to edit and change and cut out and, and alter to try to make the Bible not say that Jesus is God. Every time the Bible calls him the Lord Jesus Christ, it is calling Jesus God. Not a God, not kind of God, not almost God. God, the Son of God himself. The Mormons do one, I almost said one better, they do one worse. They don't just change the, the Bible, so, so to speak. Uh, they add a book to it as if the Bible needed a supplement, that it didn't quite have enough in it. But what do they really use the Book of the Mormon do? They don't supplement the scriptures, they supplant the scriptures. When push comes to shove, what do they go with? They go with what the Book of Mormon says and not with the teachings of the scriptures at all. It's doctrine of demons. This isn't just some old, you know, first century Paul and John's day. The same thing holds true uh, in, in many ways today. Now notice the reason that John gives us for this need of testing the spirits. How, how big is this need? How common is this need for you and I to test, to test the spirits? In verse 1 he says that we must do so because, first and foremost, obviously, they may not be from God. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. But in fact, he tells us it's not a rare occurrence. John isn't saying, hey, you guys, I know he wouldn't have said you guys, but I, I know that this won't happen very often, and you've probably never seen this, and maybe you never will, but just in case... You, sh you might want to think about testing the spirits. At least one of you in the church should think about, one, you know, kind of keeping an eye on things and testing the spirits. He says, many, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Not, not a few, not hypothetical, many. Like, and he says it in the past tense. He doesn't just say someday this might happen. He says they, they're already here. They're already out uh, in, in the world. In fact, John is talking about a, sp a specific uh, group as far as what he's writing in this letter and this brings to my mind the account there's many things you can look at in the scriptures but first kings chapter 22 if you know that passage it's where ahab uh, king ahab king of syria went to inquire of the lord as to whether he should join judah in their war against syria to get some to kind of re reclaim some of the territory that they had lost to syria and so what did he do it sounds great what what ahab did he, he gathered together the prophets of the Lord, and there were 400 of them. You know, like every once in a while, 
I might get a phone call or somebody might pull me aside and say, hey, pastor, I need some advice on you know, this, that, or the other thing. Or I, need, I have a question about a doctrinal concern, which is great. Um, you know, I don't know how many world leaders these days actually sincerely uh, talk to either their pastors or, or any group of pastors. But imagine you know, the president of the United States gathering 400 pastors together. 400. And say, guys, I got a problem. I need your help. I need to know what we should do. I don't want to just, you know, it sounds great. I don't want to just rush forward rashly and lead the country the wrong way into war or some such thing. So I want you guys, you're the pros, right? This is your job. Tell me what God would have us do. Tell me what God, this is what Ahab's doing. Tell me if I should actually do uh, what the king of Israel wants me to do, to join him in battle in, in war. So 400 prophets, but there was a problem, wasn't there? What did they tell him? For, uh, about 400 men, it says. 400 prophets, people claiming to speak for God, and they all told him what he wanted to hear. It, it became some version of, you can do it. You're great. God's with you. Certainly you'll, you'll have victory. It's all good. Everything is, everything is awesome. Uh, go, go do what, you're, you know, what your mind is set on it to do. Um, and it's, a, it's as if he knew something wasn't right. And he said, oh, there's one more. There's one other prophet that I mean, you haven't heard from yet. You'd think 400 would be enough. But he knew better. He knew something was wrong. There was one other prophet, the prophet Micaiah, who may have says that he hated. It's like there's this one guy. I don't want to talk to him. I can't stand him. Right. Please don't bring him. But I guess I have to. And why did he why did he hate him? He hated him because he says this. He hated him because he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. He doesn't say what I want to hear. He doesn't tell me the pleasant things. He tells me things I don't, I don't like. He, he tells me he prophesies evil concerning me. You'd think that would make him go, maybe I should repent and stop doing what I'm doing wrong. But that's not what he does. He's like, I'll just listen to the guys that tell me what I want to hear. So Micaiah alone prophesied at least eventually that Ahab would fall in battle if he went. Now, ironically, what he does at first is Micah or Micaiah shows up and tells the king the same thing the other guys did. It's like, yeah, yeah, you're great. Go ahead. Go in battle. Good job. You know, have, have fun. Have a great time, king. No problem. I'll see you when you get back. You know, I'm paraphrasing. It's not what it says. Right. And the king's like, hmm. Something, he never does this. Like, you know, there's something wrong. He's saying, like, the thing he complained about, Micaiah did. The opposite of He's like, he told him something good about him. Oh, you're going to do great. Go to war. And then what does he say? He prophesies to him, okay, I'll tell you the truth. God says if you go to war, you're going to die in the battle. You won't be coming back. Did he listen? Did he say, well, I shouldn't go? No. He, he decided to go with the 400, and what happened? He died in, in that battle, uh, and he was slain. And in verse 22 of that chapter, we're told that there was a lying, quote, a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And when it says a lying spirit, if you read the text, it's not using the word spirit the way that we might use it as their attitude was a lying attitude. It's a spirit that led them to deceive him. So John is talking about the same kind of thing now. You know, I always say this. Does God change? 
No. The same truths that we see in the Old Testament, do, do we just erase all that now and go, well, now we live in the modern age, these things don't happen? No, of course not. These same things happen now. Lying spirits work through human teachers to deceive uh, many, many people. Uh, but think about this. The thing that jumped off the page at me when I looked at that was, think about the numbers involved here. I know we can't extrapolate everything. You know, This means this will be the case in our day. 400 prophets, 400 of them, and they all lied. They all sealed his doom by lying to him. You know, there's, there are consequences to ideas, especially false ones. And they were deceiving him in such a way as to lead to his death. The one man who told him the truth, he didn't like and didn't want to hear what he had to say. But there was a lying spirit in the mouth of all of Ahab's prophets. Ahab did not test the spirits to see if they were from God, did he? You get the feeling he kind of knew, but he didn't, didn't think of it enough to, to change his behavior and, and repent. 400 prophets to one true one. And think of the great harm these men did to him uh, that were not of the Lord by just telling him what he wanted to hear. And do we think that most pastors and preachers in our own day are much different? Like, do, do we think that in our day it's, it's the minority, the, the very tiniest minority that aren't faithful to the Bible? It's not, that's not the way it is. It might not be 400 to 1, but sometimes it seems like it might be. Right? Are most, are most preachers faithful to the word of God? Are they true to the scripture when they preach and teach? Or do they just speak agreeable things do they just speak pleasant things that people want to hear? I think it's, it's sad to think, but it, it, seems, it seems pretty obvious that many ministries these days, they exist by just telling people what they want to hear. That's not how it works. That's not how God's, God's, word, God's word does not just do whatever, say whatever we want it to say. It doesn't always say pleasant things to us. Sometimes it calls us to repent of our sins. Not, nobody, nobody's going to do that if, they, if they're going to prophesy something that's just pleasant. It's rare to find someone faithful. And so what are we to do? John says, test the spirits. Don't be lazy. Don't just accept whatever you're hearing. Test it by the scripture. It brings to my mind Paul's words to the Ephesian elders. Remember when Paul was on his uh, journey away uh, to trial and he stopped by to, to, to speak with the elders from the city of Ephesus and he's giving them his goodbye. He's telling them, you're never going to see me again. You know, this church that he spent so much time ministering at. And he said to the elders there, but he's basically passing the baton. He's saying, Tag, you're it. This is your job now. I'm, I'm going to be gone. He says, pay careful attention. Acts 20, 28 to 31. Pay careful attention or be on guard uh, to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Period. But then he goes on and he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, imagine saying that, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. 
Paul spent at least three years ministering the gospel in the city of Ephesus, building up the church, establishing and appointing elders, all these things, teaching them the whole counsel of God to the best of his ability. And one of the things that he says was a hallmark of his teaching. It's hard to imagine this kind of a thing, but, but it's what he says. Part of what he said for the entire three plus years he was there was warning them about false teaching that was to try to make its way into the church. From, but from both from the outside as well as from within, he even says, you know, it, it almost reminds you of, of Jesus at the Last Supper, you know, telling, hey, there's a Judas here. He's like, some from among you, from among the elders. And honestly, like, that sounds shocking to our ears, but should it? Where does the false teaching come from? Teachers, elders, people that, you know, pastors, you know, that's where it comes from. I remember reading, this isn't a quote, but an old J.C. Rowell quote, and he mentions that, you know, all the heresies that afflict the church come from the people with the degrees. It's true. It's one of the reasons that the church, the, the, the Reformed church, is we need strong, ruling elders. It's a, it's a need. Every Reformed Presbyterian church has to have them because it's, it's, it's the guys with all the letters behind their names. We're the ones that cause all the trouble. We're the ones that think we're so smart because we have all this education. We're the ones that introduce all the heresies. Right? So Paul said, Paul knew that way ahead of time. Paul's like, hey, it's some of you, he's saying to the elders of the church. But this was no hypothetical thing for Paul. He warned them that savage wolves were going to come and they would come from both from within and from without. Paul was so concerned about this that he warned them about it with tears day and night for three whole years. Sounds like something we should pay attention to and be mindful of. So it is the responsibility, first and foremost, of the elders and pastors of a church to guard the church against error, false teaching, and heresy. It, no one should occupy the office of elder or pastor who is unwilling or unable to guard the church against false teaching. Such, such men that, are, that refuse to do that part of their job leave the flock as easy prey for the wolves that are sure to come. It's just like a shepherd guarding the sheep, seeing the wolf and the shepherd runs. That's, that's what that is uh, for us if we don't do our jobs in that regard. But John doesn't stop there, does he? John doesn't say, hey, you elders at the church, test the spirits. Who is John speaking to in 1 John chapter, well, the whole letter, but in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3? You, me, everybody, every believer is who is being talked to here and told to test the spirits to see if they are from God. Ian, Ian Hamilton writes, the, writes it this way. He says, this testing of the spirits is not the responsibility only of the church's leaders, though they surely have a great responsibility to do it. John tells us that this responsibility, sorry, John tells us that this is the responsibility of every Christian. Every Christian. That means you, it doesn't mean you have to have a theology degree. It doesn't mean you have to be, you know, an apologist or a polemicist or a theologian or whatever we might want to call ourselves at times. It just means pay attention. Weigh everything you hear by the scriptures to see if it's so, if what is being said is so. Well, the second thing, after seeing how it's important for us to test the spirits, John gives us a way to test the spirits. What, how are we to do this? You know, it would be one thing if John just said, hey, everybody, 
test the spirits, good luck. You know, he, he tells us how, which was what he would have to do. He tells us not just the need for testing the spirits, but the way to test the spirits. And look at verses 2 to 3 where he tells us how to do that. He says, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Just a quick note, and I, I think this, it, it, either way, it, it really means the same. But when he says, by this you know, uh, just for the, the grammar people here, uh, the, the word know there, it, it's, it might not be an indicative. It could also be an imperative. And I think it's probably uh, more along the lines of either way, it's really an imperative. Basically, he's saying, by this, no. Like, you must know this. This is something he's telling them to do. By this, know the spirit of God. How? Every spirit that confesses Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So what is the test that John offers us for whatever doctrine that we might be hearing so we can test the spirits? It's that every spirit that confesses, every teaching that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and everyone that does not is not of God. In other words, any teaching, any doctrine, any teacher that does not affirm the truth of the incarnation of Christ is from the Antichrist. It's not from God, now this is not the only doctrinal test. I wish it was that simple. That you could just have this you know, on a postcard, on a postage stamp. I got this one thing, and as long as you hit this one thing right, it's all good. Uh, but it is a pretty important uh, doctrinal test. In fact, you might know earlier in this very letter, in chapter 2, verses 20, verse 22, John gave us a different test. It's not unrelated, but it's, it's another test. He says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. But notice in both these tests that John puts to, before us here, um, what's at the center of it? What is the main, what's the main thing? You ever talk about you know, keeping the main thing the main thing? What was the main thing for John? Your doctrine of Christ. What, what do these teachers say about Jesus Christ? Who do they say he is? Is he just a man? Is he not a man at all? They, the Gnostics denied he was a man at all. They, they, they couldn't comprehend or conceive of that God, who is spirit, could become in any way physical because the physical realm to them was evil. So they denied the incarnation entirely. They said, you know, he, he appeared to be a man. Well, if he only appeared to be a man, we are still in our sins. Because someone who just appeared to be a man could not have died uh, to save us from our sins. So they, would, they denied that Christ, the Son of God, actually became a man. That is why John is so pointed here. If they, if they affirm, if they confess that Jesus Christ uh, is, is come in the flesh, then they're from God. But if not, then they, they are not. But the person and work of Christ is central here. Uh, who he is and what he has done for our salvation. They are, they are so closely intertwined as to be inseparable. However your doctrine of Christ happens to go, so goes your view of the gospel. And to reject or deny and not confess that Jesus Christ uh, came in the flesh is to gut the gospel. You've undone the gospel if that's what you hold to in your view of Christ. So always, here's a, a, the, the kids say a pro tip, Always examine one's doctrine of Christ. 
If you want to examine a teacher whoever they, or a writer, whoever it is, look at what they say about Jesus Christ and what they don't say about Jesus Christ. That will tell you a great deal about whether someone is of God or not. You don't have to be a Gnostic to fail that test. The Gnostics denied the bodily incarnation of Christ. They denied that he actually came in the flesh. That being the case, they were not from God. And those like them are also not from God. But what does John say? He doesn't just say they're not from God. He spells the rest of it out. They're not just not from God. They're from the Antichrist. Verse 6, they're of the spirit of error or falsehood. So, brothers and sisters, those are our choices. Those are your choices. Either we will hold the true doctrine of Jesus Christ, which is of the Holy Spirit himself, or we will be led astray by false doctrine, which is of the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of error, and as Paul would call it, the doctrine of demons. Those are our two choices. And so you and I have to test the spirits to see whether they are of God. And we do so first and foremost by examining their doctrine of Christ, who he is and what he came to do. We have to affirm inwardly and confess openly the truth of who Jesus is, that he is the incarnate son of God, truly God and truly man. I'll, I'll quote in full Shorter Catechism 21. If you have a copy of the Westminster Standards or even the little catechism book that we sometimes have copies of here, um, you know, as a, as a Presbyterian pastor, I want to say everybody memorize all 107 question and answers. Now, I'm not an idiot, uh, and I, I can't even do that right now off the top of my head. I have a bunch of them memorized, but I couldn't. If that was my test, I'd fail it right at this moment, I confess, but, uh, but I shouldn't. But what I will say this, even if you don't think you can, you can memorize all 107 questions, which little kids used to do, by the way, um, yeah. so pastors shouldn't be crying about having to do it. Um, but there are a handful of them that I would recommend to you if you're not going to do the whole thing, and this is one of them. Question and answer 21, if you memorize this question and answer, it will give you, I, I believe it will act as a safeguard to keep you in line with what the scripture says about who Jesus is. Here it is. Question 21, who is the redeemer of God's elect? You know, who, who is the savior? Who is the redeemer? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God, became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. That last phrase is kind of the key. God and man uh, in two distinct natures and one person forever. So he's not a mix of God and man. He's not partly God, partly man. His manhood did not get somehow elevated by his deity and his deity kind of demoted by his manhood or anything like that by his, by his uh, hum humanity. Truly God and truly man Two distinct natures, but one person. And forever. He, he didn't stop being the God-man when he rose from the dead and, went to the, and ascended to the right hand of God. He's still the perfect God-man now, which is why he can be our mediator and redeemer to begin with. If he's not truly God and truly man now, he cannot be our mediator. He cannot be the go-between between God and man if he's not God and man, truly, and in one person. So I would commend that to you just for your own edification to memorize question 21. Uh, so who is Jesus? He is the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Jesus is the Lord. We say that phrase very often. We don't often, I think, think of what it means. What does it mean to say Jesus is Lord? It means he is God Almighty. He is the ruler of all things. To say he is the Christ, what does that mean? 
Briefly, it means he's the Messiah. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means God's chosen one or his anointed one. He's God's chosen redeemer and king. Jesus is the eternal son of God without beginning and without end. He's begotten, not created. There was never a time when the son of God was not. The Jehovah's Witnesses, what do they teach about Jesus Christ? He's a God. They, they teach he was a created being and he is less than truly God. They say he's a God with a small g as if, as if it's possible to almost be God. As if it's possible to be almost infinite. It's nonsense and it's not, it's not scriptural at all. He is truly God and truly man. The son of God, eternal son of God became man in such a way that he was and continues to be God and man in two, two distinct natures and one person forever. He's not less than God in any way, nor is he in any way less than truly human. Again, if he weren't fully human, if he weren't truly human, we're still in our sins. He could not be our savior if any of these things were not true of him. He could not die in our place to save us from our sins if he weren't truly a man. And his death could not be sufficient to redeem us from our sins if he weren't truly God. A false doctrine of Christ, if you think about it, is really a denial of the gospel itself. No wonder Satan's always finding ways to attack and undermine this one cardinal thing. Satan undermines all the Bible, but the one thing he undermines more than anything else is what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, about who he is and what he came to do. That's why we have to test the spirits, and that's why John gives us these simple tests. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a kindness of God, the Holy Spirit, inspiring the word that he did uh, in, from John's pen here. John doesn't give us some complicated five-paragraph-long test, does he? He keeps it very simple. There's no one in this room who can't read 1 John 4, 1 to 3 and understand basically what John is telling us to watch for. You don't need a theological degree to grasp what John is telling us to do here and how he's telling us to do it. And so that is one of the, I hope that is an encouragement to each one here. Well, last but not least, um, let's talk about the true spirit of Christmas in this regard. Those of us who have believed on Christ for salvation are in need of this kind of spirit of Christmas. Not to mention the other one is fine, but this is one is, is much more important. Again, not just the, center, the sense of cheerfulness and goodwill that we might have for a few weeks at, the, at this time of year until the credit card come, bills come due, uh, but, but the true spirit of Christmas. That is the spirit that confesses that the Lord Jesus Christ has truly come in the flesh in order to save sinners. You know, I, I hope that we never tire of hearing at Christmas or any other time, the story of Christ's birth and the blessed doctrine of the incarnation of the Son of God as the Savior of sinners. You know, Rob mentioned it. We were singing the hymns this morning. Um, I, some, of the, some of the phrases were kind of jumping off the page. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. You know, Pleased with men as man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. Like, there's so much gospel doctrine in these songs uh, and, and I'm hope you know we hope that because we know them so well, we sing them so often that the, the things we're singing that we'll think about and dwell upon, and think about what these things uh, mean. Uh, how many, how many, how many churches at this time of year do you think? And I'm not asking you to think of any in particular, but 
How many at this time of year spend all their time, they get people in the door and they spend all their time teaching them nothing but sentiment and platitudes rather than the truth of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done for our salvation, the salvation of sinners. There's, there's more than one way to deny these things. You just don't preach them. You know, the, the liberal churches, they may not be Gnostic in a literal sense, but they deny many of these things. The incarnation, the resurrection, the ascension, all these things, they redefine or explain away in humanistic ways. Um, this, this world desperately needs Jesus Christ. This world needs to hear the truth of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. It needs to hear the true meaning of Christmas, that Jesus Christ came into the world, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. When he talks about coming into the world, he's talking about the incarnation and, of course, of Christ's death and resurrection. That's why Paul says in Romans 10.9, he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That he's Lord and that God raised him from the dead. He didn't, didn't say incarnation in, in so many words, but it's what he's talking about. He's Lord and God raised him from the dead. He couldn't have died if he wasn't a man, uh, wasn't made man. And in verse 13, he goes on to say, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. May God grant in his great mercy in Jesus Christ that we may always as believers and as a church affirm and confess the truth of Jesus Christ, that he has truly come in the flesh for us and for our salvation so that sinners may hear of Christ and believe upon him for salvation from their sins and have eternal life in him. To God be the glory forever. Amen.